This week on Blue 58, OTAs are finally here, and with that comes takes from all corners. Aaron Rodgers, for one, weighing in on Des Bell, which rookies are going to make an impact, and then dive into some moral philosophy. Yes, really. Finally, please read before you comment. Blue 58! Hello and welcome to another episode of Blue 58, the one and only podcast of thepowersweep.com. I'm your fearless host, John Meerdink. Very excited to be with you here for episode number 82. I've asked some of you, all of you really, uh, to submit some questions, and we will take those questions here in just a little bit, but I do want to touch on a couple things first. Before we get to your questions, just a couple things. First, like I said up top, OTAs started this week, and with that came some opportunities to finally talk to some players about some of the things that that have been going on with the team over the past few weeks and months. Among those things, Des Bryant. Nothing has really been going on with Des Bryant as far as the Packers are actually concerned, but he has been a topic of conversation now for some time. And an intrepid reporter asked Aaron Rodgers what he thought about that. Here is his quote in its entirety, and that's important. First, here we go. We like young receivers, so I'm assuming that's the way they are going to keep going. I don't know why you'd cut Jordy Nelson and bring in Dez, but he's a talented player. He's going to end up somewhere. If he ends up here, we'll obviously welcome him with open arms and get him up to speed as quickly as possible. A couple things here. First, that's not exactly how it worked out with with Jordy Nelson. Uh, it was it was just a cost-cutting move. It wasn't because, well, it was partly because the Packers thought he couldn't still play. They really just didn't think he could play at the level at which he was being compensated. And that's not really, it's not, it, it wouldn't be a one-to-one substitution bringing in Des Bryant, just giving him the money that you would have given to Jordy Nelson. That's really not, I think, what anybody has suggested. And that's not a fair examination of the situation. But secondly, it's interesting to see how people are only looking at part of the quote. I th- I see three distinct things here that you could really choose to latch onto. First, that way that he says, that's the way they are going to keep going. There. That's the way they are going to keep going. Who's they? Well, presumably the folks running the front office in, in Green Bay. But it's interesting that we've seen several times this offseason Rodgers drawing that line, that comparison between himself, what he wants, what he thinks, and they, the vague they that's out there making decisions about the Packers and their future and Aaron Rodgers' future and, and things like that. It's it's always they. So the difference between Rodgers and they is interesting. But then secondly, his remark about, I don't know what they're thinking about Jordy versus Dez. We've talked about that. But then thirdly, he says that if the Packers signed Dez Bryant, he'd be welcome in Green Bay with open arms. No mention of the history between the two sides, the Packers and, and Dez Bryant, the, the catch-not-catch thing in the playoffs a few years ago. Nothing, nothing like that. He says if the Packers signed him, he would welcome him with open arms. But you've not seen that mentioned in any of the headlines about his reaction to this situation. It's always been I don't know why you'd cut Jordy and bring in Dez. That's the only reaction you're getting in the media, which is silly because that's only part of what he said. Always try to look at the context as often as you can. Speaking of context, this is not directly related to the Packers, but I think it's something that we need to be talking about and thinking about. The Reuben Foster situation. 
This was interesting last week. Well, it's interesting now, but it got really interesting last week because the woman who accused him in that alleged domestic violence situation from a couple years ago had her day in court, and boy, was it a day in court because she essentially took back, not even essentially, just actually took back everything that she'd said about Reuben Foster and said she'd really just been trying to ruin his life. That's insanely weird and insanely crazy. That is a horrible, horrible thing to do to someone. Over the past couple months, there have been really now two distinct storylines. You had the accusation against Foster, and everyone says, see, look, we told you he was a character risk. Uh, Why aren't the 49ers cutting him now? He's just done what we always thought he was going to do. But then last week, the victim took everything back, and then you have a whole different group of people who say, see, women are going to go out there and make stuff up. You can't trust anything that they say. Then the 49ers for keeping him and standing by him through what turned out to be, apparently, false allegations. Everyone, to me, is seeing what they want to see in this. And we need to be preparing ourselves for a situation like this as people who like the Packers and think about the Packers and and write and talk about the Packers because something like this is going to happen in Green Bay at some point. Somebody rightly or wrongly, fairly or unfairly, is going to be accused of something that puts their career in jeopardy, for good reasons or for bad reasons. And we have to be prepared to react intelligently. People are innocent until they are proven guilty. Victims also have the right to be believed. That means we as people on the outside of these situations have to be willing to take things a day at a time and let them play out. In this foster situation, say it happened in Green Bay, it'd be okay, it's the right way to do it, to say, wow, this is a bad look for the 49ers or for the Packers or for whatever team, and still be willing to let it play out. You don't have to call for blood immediately. Because clearly we didn't have all the facts in this situation, and it's going to happen again. It might happen in Green Bay. It probably will happen in Green Bay at some point. And we have to be willing to do the same thing again. Take it slow. Let it play out. Let all the facts come out. And then react. I know that's you know counterintuitive. And that probably makes things more difficult for me and, and for everybody who, who does stuff like what we do. But that's the way it has to be. It's not easy. But that's the way it has to be. I know that's a little bit of a heavy topic. But... I, it, it was. It's been on my mind ever since that that came out. <laughs> the, the audio and the in the in the stuff from her or the quotes just from her time in court. She's trying to ruin his life, and, and everybody bought it for two months, and his life was almost ruined. I know he's got a whole bunch of other stuff going on, um, but we we've got to do better about taking a little bit of time to to let things play out. I I think maybe we've learned some of the wrong lessons from stuff like what happened with Ray Rice uh, that just got worse as as more and more stuff came out and uh, everybody wanted to give him a pass, it seems like, early on. But this is the the complete opposite. We very obviously didn't have all of the facts and all the facts that we did have made it look a lot better for Reuben Foster, who who seems to at least have been a lot more innocent than people are, are willing to give him credit for. Let's take some of your questions. Got a good batch of questions this time around, and I'm excited to answer each and every one of them. Callum Williams, first in here uh, from across the pond, jumping in with two questions. And uh, I think both of them very good. I'm excited to answer both of these. First and foremost, Callum asks, which rookies do you think will make the biggest impact? I think we've got tiers of impact here. 
Um, first tier should be pretty obvious. It's going to be the Packers' first two picks, Jair Alexander and Josh Jackson. They have the most opportunity to make the, an impact early on because that's the area where the Packers had the biggest need, at cornerback. It's also a very, very high visibility position. It's hard to be uh, on the field playing cornerback and and not get noticed out there, for better or for worse. So I think those are going to be the ones that, that have the absolute biggest, most interesting, noticeable impact for the Packers uh, here in 2018. After that, Tier 2, Cole Madison. Uh, this is a guy at a position of need. Uh, he's got a lot of versatility. He's a pretty good athlete. And I think he could have a lot of impact early on. Uh, there's a good chance that he is going to get some playing time at right guard or right tackle early on, though I'm not sure he's going to be the Packers' first option to start at either of those positions. But he is going to be in the mix, and the ability that he has to play both inside and outside is going, I think, to be a big asset for him and for uh, He is on Tier 2 all by himself. Thought about putting Oren Burks in there, but I'm not sure he's going to get as many extended opportunities as somebody like an offensive lineman. If Madison gets into the lineup, chances are he's going to be there for 30, 40 snaps at a time. I'm not sure Burks is going to get that kind of opportunity early on, so I think Madison gets a little bit of a nudge there. Finally, on Tier 3, I'm not going to pick a specific name here, but I think it's going to be one of the rookie wide receivers. Hard to say which one. All of them are are pretty similar. Uh, you know, body type-wise, athleticism-wise, uh, the way that they play, there are, in broad strokes, some significant similarities between the three of them. And I think one of them is going to break out and play some kind of role this season. But as we said last week, chances are that's probably not going to be a very big role because rookie wide receivers, especially day three picks, just don't tend to have a big impact as rookies. And I know we have to take some time and, and let them get on the field and all that, but just the, the the bare facts are they just tend to not have big opportunities and the or big impacts as rookies. And the ones that do have impactful rookie seasons tend to be the smaller slot type receivers that are just going to get a lot of balls thrown their way. They have an impact by volume. These guys are not those sorts of players. And uh, for them to have big statistical impacts this year is going to take a, a special set of circumstances. So I'm not I'm not holding my breath for any of them to have a huge, huge role, but I do think one of them is going to play a role for the Packers this year. Sticking with Callum Williams, he asks, how close is the NFC North to being a level playing field after the Bears' offseason additions? I'm going to expand this question out a little bit because I think we need to take a look at the NFC North as a whole. Overall, I think the division is as competitive as it's been in a long time, probably since the early 2010s, like 2010 to 2014 or so. Uh, I would say it lines up this way right now. Minnesota on top, just by virtue of their very, very strong defense. Uh, Kirk Cousins helps their offense take another step forward. Um, he's the best quarterback they've had probably since Brett Favre. Uh, and it's that's uh, that's not really that big of a shot at the other quarterbacks that they've had in there. They just haven't had a lot of talent at the quarterback position. Uh, after a slight gap, I think the Packers, Aaron Rodgers coming back, you know, puts them in a great position. I don't have to tell you that. Uh, slight gap again after the Packers, then the Detroit Lions, um, always going to be fairly solid. I think they, they've 
they've done a good job of staying competitive, but they haven't really done a lot to take that that next step forward to really contend. Then maybe a slightly bigger gap, and then the Chicago Bears. I like a lot of what the Bears have done this offseason. They could really, I think, push Detroit and get towards being like that middle-tier conference spoiler-type team. I don't think they're really ready for the big time yet, but... You know, they are really, it seems like, going in the right direction. And for the first time in a long time, it seems like they're going in a direction. Uh, for the last four or five years, it hasn't really seemed like the Bears knew what they were doing at all. Uh, it, it just it seems like they're just hoping uh, that the, the, the additions that they make really pan out. It hasn't seemed like they really had an idea of the team they wanted to become. John Fox, for the time he was there, seemed really like sort of a more custodian type coach and uh, just kind of taking care of what they had in the building already. He didn't really seem like he was elevating the team. And that was very similar to, you know, what he did in Denver as well. I'm not sure he really elevated what was going on there, but he did a good, good job of making sure, you know, the trains were running on time. Everybody did what they were supposed to do. Now it seems like they are actually going in a direction and uh, we'll see probably pretty quickly here whether that's a direction they actually want to be going in um but i like a lot of what they're doing and i think as a whole the nfc north is as competitive probably more competitive than it's been in in quite some time no name on this one but uh, the twitter handle is at pz88 the name on the account just all caps p-c-z-r-v-p so thank you mr pz88 for asking this question or miss or missus whatever your preferred um, title is in that respect. This is also related to the NFC North a little bit. The questioner asks, going back roughly 25 years, the Vikings have had eight Hall of Fame players and two probably more in the near term. Uh, This has yielded zero Super Bowl appearances. Uh, The Packers have one Super Bowl, three Super Bowl appearances. Are there quantifiable differences in the programs that would explain the difference in results in spite of the talent being weighted towards Minnesota? Very, very good question here. Um, Right off the top, I don't think there are quantifiable differences in the programs. And I say that because outside of, you know, coaches being coaches and having the way they like to do things, I'm not sure there is one particular way of building a team where anybody can say, yes, this is absolutely the right way to do it. Because if there was, somebody would have figured it out by now and everybody would be doing it the same way. The NFL is a copycat league and people like to copy the things that work well. If there was a way that worked well for everybody all the time, somebody would be doing it. I don't know if you can nail down specifically what the Packers have done that has resulted in more success than the Vikings. So I don't think that there are quantifiable differences in the programs. But there's, let's let's take a second and look at, at these Hall of Fame players that have been on both sides um, in Minnesota and in Green Bay. When he says dating back 25 years, let's just cut that off at 1992 because that's really when this era of Packers football starts. I think a lot of people would, would say that's pretty pretty much how it's been. Uh, the Favre era, the Wolf era, the Holmgren era, whatever you want to call it. Since that time, the Packers have really turned things around and been competitive almost any every year since then. So in that time, the, Pack, uh, the, the Vikings have had these Hall of Fame players play for their team. 
Uh, Chris Doleman was with them from 1992 to 1993 and some time before that, but within this era, 92 and 93. Randall McDaniel, 92 to 99. John Randall, 92 to 2000. Gary Zimmerman in 92. Chris Carter, 92 to 2001. Randy Moss from 98 to 04. And then again in 2010. Remember that? That was fun. Adrian Peterson from 2007 to 2016. And then Brett Favre in 2009 and 2010. The Packers, meanwhile, have had Brett Favre from 1992 to 2007, Reggie White throughout the entire middle 90s there, and then Aaron Rodgers, if you count him as a, as a Hall of Famer. I'm not sure if I got everybody that I that the questioner is referring to in that, but I think broad strokes, we, we've, we've pretty much covered it here. So I think if you're looking for a reason why the Vikings have had so many Hall of Famers yet won no Super Bowls, and the Packers have only had three, uh, but won one and have been to three more, is uh, where those Hall of Fame players have played. Uh, The Vikings have a lot of good linemen on both sides of the ball. Uh, They've got two wide receivers and a running back, and then Brett Favre. Uh, The Packers, meanwhile, have Brett Favre and Reggie White, and then Aaron Rodgers, if you want to throw him in there as well. Having a Hall of Fame-level quarterback means a whole lot more for your team than having a Hall of Fame-level running back or a Hall of Fame-level receiver or even a Hall of Fame-level offensive line. Even if you have Hall of Famers up and down your offensive line, I'm still not sure that's going to be enough to get you to a Super Bowl. But a great quarterback, if he gets hot in in the playoffs, can carry you there all by himself. Look at what Eli Manning did in the two giant Super Bowl runs. Those are two of the best series of games in the playoffs that any quarterback has ever played, ever. He, just unbelievable. Where has that been through the rest of his career, I guess is the great defining question for Eli Manning. But he played so well during that stretch that he, he basically powered the entire Giants offense. He made it really, really easy for their defense to take care of business, and they had a, a great defense in both of those runs. The Packers have been able to get more opportunities to make those kind of runs because of the quarterbacks that they've had. Uh, in 2016, you can see just how how starkly that plays out. The Packers were not a, probably a Super Bowl caliber team that year, but Aaron Rodgers was playing out of his mind until the NFC Championship game, and he pretty much carried them all the way there. Uh, same with Brett Favre at, at other points in his career, and then the exact opposite at other, at other times in his career. He got teams that maybe shouldn't have been where they were to that point of how good he played. And I think you can see that in the Vikings 2019. Favre played really well until he didn't and took them as far as they've been in a long time. So I think it's pretty much just the the difference in quarterbacks, where those those Hall of Fame players are playing. It it's you know, it's not a lot, but it's enough. Along those same lines though, uh, this illustrates something that I've long believed and known to be true, but you really have to be pretty lucky to win a Super Bowl. A lot of luck goes into winning a Super Bowl. Just look at the opportunities the Vikings have had. In 1998, they had one of the great offenses ever. Randall Cunningham uh, and Randy Moss and Chris Carter. Unbelievable. They were putting up heretofore unseen levels of points, and they were virtually unstoppable. And then a missed field goal, in the playoffs, and it all comes apart. A missed field goal by a kicker who had been absolutely automatic to that point. 2009, uh, a great season from Brett Favre until it wasn't. Uh, and the Vikings, if, if just one or two plays goes different, 
they're on their way to the Super Bowl and probably having a pretty good shot at taking down Peyton Manning and the Colts. I would have probably picked the Vikings against the Colts and it would have galled me to do so, especially since I was living in Minnesota at the time. But, you know, a couple of things go different and the Vikings are at least in a Super Bowl with a good chance to win. You have to be pretty lucky to win a Super Bowl. A lot of things have to go your way. Anybody who tells you otherwise is dumb and they haven't haven't looked at it and they haven't looked at it honestly. It takes a lot of luck to win a Super Bowl and there's no shame in saying that. Related to this question, uh, I need to make a point about the Hall of Fame. In, the, in, in football, nobody goes into the Hall of Fame as a part of a team. Um, I know guys are represented in the Hall of Fame, like memorabilia and stuff is being part of certain teams. That's different. You don't get inducted into the Hall of Fame as a member of the Packers, as a member of the Vikings. That's baseball. You know, on your baseball plaque, you're wearing a hat with a logo of a particular team on it. You go into the Hall of Fame representing a particular team. That's fine. That's baseball. In football, it's it's not like that. Uh, look at the Hall of Fame as having transcended your team. You are just famous for being a football player at that point, for what you've accomplished in football. You are famous for football, not famous for what you did for a particular team. Uh, you, you have, you know gone to football Olympus, I guess. You're not going in as a member of a particular team. I see that each and every year. You know, what team is this guy going in as? That's it, not how it works, and that's not a fair representation of the process. Okay, that's just my thing about the Hall of Fame. Maybe you share that, maybe you don't. I don't know. Rudy asks, uh, with the New Orleans number one draft pick in next year's draft now possessed by the Packers, is it immoral to secretly root for catastrophic injury to key Saints players or Bounty Gate 2.0? This is a whopper of a question. <laughs> so let's take a, a couple different approaches to this. First, the moral angle, then just the should we root against the Saints angle. First, moral angle. Um, <laughs> looked up a couple different moral implications of this one. Uh, I. I'm a Christian from a Christian perspective, I would say, yeah, probably don't wish harm on other people. But I just Googled, you know, stuff like, is it wrong to wish harm on others? Came up with a couple different answers from catholicanswers.org, a message board for people looking for answers from Catholicism. Uh, They said, hating someone is wrong, wishing harm on someone is wrong. No two ways about it. Okay, that's good. From a Jewish equivalent of the same thing, uh, a topic of discussion titled, Are We Allowed to Wish Ill on Someone or Some Organization That Is Doing So in this instance, you would think of the Saints, by virtue of their winning, doing harm to the Packers by making their draft pick worse. Okay. Um, The answerer says, The Talmud tells how Rabbi Meir had wicked neighbors who caused him harm and much anguish. He prayed to God to wipe them out. When his wife heard him praying this way, she scolded him. Another rabbi writes in his classic work that if your wife scolds you, even if she is wrong, you should listen. Otherwise, she may not scold you when you are really wrong. So uh, his wife said it's wrong to pray harm on other people. I would probably agree with that. Don't do that. Also good advice. Just generally listen to your wife if you are married or listen to your husband. If he's telling you, hey, or she is telling you, hey, you know, don't do that. That seems like a bad thing to do. Even if you disagree with them, probably best to listen because maybe they won't give you advice like that in the future. 
Non-religious advice. Psychology Today says, why are we pleased with others' misfortune? They say it's schadenfreude, which I agree with. Sometimes it's just nice to see that vegetarian find out that they were actually eating a turkey burger and not a veggie burger. Um, So there is a little bit of schadenfreude at play here. So from a moral perspective, probably not good to wish for bad things to happen to key members of the Saints team, especially if it results in bodily harm for those people. But, but... Social contract theory. This is where it gets interesting, and I think this is your loophole if you really want to wish for bad things to happen to the saints. This, from a definition I found on the internet, according to social contract theory, moral and ethical codes are the principles all rational people would adopt as rules of life if they could count on others to do the same. Social contract theory can be used to examine some key questions in business business ethics. To me, for the Packers and the saints, this is just a business deal. Uh, The Packers and Saints exchanged assets, and the Packers are hoping for the best return on their assets, and the Saints are hoping for the best return on theirs. From a Philosophy Answers website, we get a little bit more exposition here. Social contract theory, nearly as old as philosophy itself, is the view that persons' moral and or patients are dependent upon a contract or agreement among them to form the society in which they live. This is the key answer for the Packers and the Saints. They both live in the society called the National Football League. The Saints gave the Packers an asset. That asset goes up in value as the Saints do worse and worse. It is okay inside the rules of this society that both of these teams live in for the Packers to root, I guess within reason, for bad things to happen to the Saints. Social contract theory bails you out, Rudy. Morally, at best in a little bit of a gray area, but if you just go on the pure philosophy of it all, which I guess, why wouldn't we here on Blue 58, a football podcast? Um, If you go just by the pure philosophy of it, I guess you can root for bad things to happen to the Saints. Just maybe don't specify what those bad things are. Makes sense? Okay, I think that makes sense. Too much philosophy. Maybe just enough philosophy. I don't know. Matub asks, why don't people appreciate Brandon Jackson more for his utility? Brandon Jackson continuing to supply some of that utility to the Packers. Back with the team uh, as a coaching intern yet again. He was with the team last year as well. I think it just comes down to a lack of flashy stats. He played a fair bit of time in Green Bay. He had exactly two 100-yard games. And just generally, he did a lot of useful things that didn't really show up on a stat sheet. He blocked really well in pass protection, and he ran a lot of good routes as a receiver. Even if he didn't always get the ball, using himself as a decoy or keeping defensive honest defenses honest just by running good routes is of value to your team. So I think it is just that simple. He didn't do a lot of things that showed up in very visible ways. It's unfortunate, but that's just sometimes how it works. Finally, Last question comes from Anthony Katz. What are your thoughts on the current state of the Packers' right side of the offensive line? Obviously impossible to say 100 days away, but this is one of the most intriguing position battles as it stands. I'm really high on McCray. Okay, that's all. I'll hang up and listen off the air. Thank you. Very gracious question. Uh, I agree with you, Anthony. Uh, The right side of the offensive line is probably the current most interesting position battle uh, on the team. I know the receiver position battle is going to get a lot of press. Uh, That's really not going to be super useful for the Packers for reasons that I have enumerated several times over the past couple weeks. 
the right side of the offensive line is very, very tricky. Uh, let's work from the inside out. Right guard, I think Justin McRae is the odds-on favorite right now. Anthony correctly points that out. I don't know if he's the answer long-term. I don't know if he's even the answer all season for the Packers there. But he's got the body for it. He's immensely strong. And it seems like that is a much more natural position for him than right tackle. So I think if you just, you know, get for filling in your roster sheet, pencil in Justin McRae at right guard for right now. Other contenders we talked about a little bit uh, last week and a little bit throughout uh, the past couple weeks um, on the blog as well. Uh, a lot of other contenders there. I think you got to throw Kyle Murphy in there. He considered himself a contender at right guard. Uh, Lucas Patrick also up there as well. Kofi Amici also up there as well. Uh, we'll see exactly how that shakes out, but I think Justin McRae, the leader of the pack right now. Right tackle, I think, is a little bit even more murky. Jason Spriggs played better down the stretch last year, and Kyle Murphy was solid at the start of the season last year. I don't know what you can really put in either of those players in terms of confidence right now because both of them are coming off fairly significant injuries from last season. So are you really going to bet the farm on either of them being your your number one right tackle? Just from an injury perspective alone, I think that's a little bit iffy. Uh, And that's where a guy like Cole Madison, I think, comes in. Uh, He's got long-term starting experience at right tackle. He's flexible enough to move between tackle and guard, and he's probably going to end up at guard long-term. But in the short term, he's got to be probably a contender at right tackle as well. Then there's Brian Bulaga waiting in the wings. How far along is he in his knee recovery? I guess we'll probably see in July. I wouldn't expect to see anything from him throughout OTAs, uh, especially given how conservative we know the Packers' medical staff is. That's not a really definitive answer, I know, but it's going to probably be one or multiple of those guys at right tackle at some point this season. I don't think you're going to see a guy go start to finish as the undisputed starter at right tackle um, from July or August or whatever you want to say the season actually starts to the through week 17 and into the playoffs. I just don't think that's how it's going to be for the Packers this year. But, you know, I could be wrong. I, in my notes, I have tackle... Uh, my notes just say tackle dash complete mystery to me. And I think that's, that's accurate. Uh, it, it is mysterious. See, it's going to be interesting. While I've got you here, uh, just want to bring up a post that we did today on the blog today being Tuesday, the day we're recording, you're probably listening to this on Wednesday or later, um, posted something this morning titled, uh, is Devonte Adams a true number one receiver? This is something I will do from time to time. Throw out a, a, a post that is obviously, once you read it, different from the headline. And this is one of those situations. Devontae Adams is, to the extent that there is such a thing as a true number one receiver, Devontae Adam, Adams is one in spades. Uh, he is top 20 in the NFL over the past two seasons in both receptions and yards. He is number one in the NFL over the last two seasons in touchdown receptions. If there is such a thing as being a quote-unquote true number one receiver, he obviously is one. And that was the entire point of the post, is that debating whether or not he's a true number one receiver is stupid because it's contrived debate. It's dumb. You're just trying to to really parse words. And I don't think the the phrase true number one receiver actually means anything. It's like a quarterback being a game manager versus 
whatever the opposite of a game manager is, or a running back being the the famed bell cow back, whatever that is in the 2018 NFL. People still long for a bell cow back in Green Bay, even though nobody really does things like that anymore. Immediately upon posting that, an unnamed Twitter user replied, what? Erase this, dude. Erase this. The dude is top three in the NFL right now. Jordy and Roger has been holding him back. So your assertion is not only is Devontae Adams a top or a number one receiver in the NFL, he's only been limited in terms of how much he's recognized as being a true number one because Aaron Rodgers, the two-time MVP, and Jordy Nelson, one of the great receivers in Packers history, have been holding him back somehow. So I responded. Did you read the post? To which the commenter immediately replied, Yes, I just don't want fans to get any ideas. You know how they get. Um, I admire your moxie there in the reply, but I don't believe you. I think you honestly really didn't read the piece. And if we're all going to do this together, all of us have to agree to do one thing. If we're going to take on somebody's argument, we have to at least agree to read it first. And I know we've been, we haven't really harped on that ever because generally I, I just let it slide, but it just hit me kind of funny today that on this post in particular, somebody really took me to task when I don't think they had read it at all. And uh, we can we can do better. Uh, we can continue to elevate the conversation around the Packers by just reading things first. And by and large, the community that have been, that has been around the power sweep in Blue 58 has been phenomenal. You guys have been great about doing this. Let's just continue to do that. And thank you for your support, especially in terms of downloads and, and things like that over the past couple weeks and months. They've been great. I love to interact with all of you, and, and thank you for tuning in and interacting and all of that. That's all I've got for you this week. You can find us, as you always do, at thepowersweep.com and on Facebook and on Twitter and via email via thepowersweep1959 at gmail.com. If you'd like to support us financially, you feel no obligation, but you may do so at patreon.com slash thepowersweep. One dollar a month gets us hosted uh, via our podcast host uh, for one month at a time. Um, it's it's great. It's a great deal, and we love our podcast host, and you can help us out with doing that. If you want to support us and look good while you do it, get us uh, a T-shirt from our store on Teespring. Click the store link at thepowersweep.com. And as always, you can give us a review on iTunes if you'd like. No pressure there. We do love to hear from you. Any feedback you give us helps us make this entire operation better. It helps us all become Smarter Packers fans. And as I always say, Smarter Packers fans are better Packers fans, and better Packers fans are what we all want to be. I'm John Meerdink. We'll see you next week on Blue 58.